You're listening to Kamamo House, a Honolulu talk story podcast with reflections on identity and culture from a part Hawaiian's perspective. On this episode of Kamamo House, you'll be hearing something I recorded way back in October of 2021. It is now 2022. I kind of ramble about things that happened last year, musings that I started percolating in 2020 uh, regarding theater experiences and, of course, identity politics because I'm a liberal or whatever. Enjoy! It's been months since I've done this little thing, and I'm in a zone of revisiting things. Uh, It's been quite a year, a dynamic time, and I've been revisiting old journals and old ideas and old stories and helping them grow. Um, And I'm going to read right now something I wrote July 3rd, 2020 um, that I haven't visited since then. Um, and I, I don't remember writing this, so I'm, I'm just going to read it. <laughs> I had all these ideas, all these notes about what my episode should be about. And, like, you know, I had, like, 20 episodes, like, ideas written. Um... And I, never, I didn't get really to any of them, except um, my queer episode. Um, yeah, so here's one. This is supposed to be an episode about Asian privilege. Being aced... Ugh, I fucked up already. Being East Asian is different from being Southeast Asian or Southern Asian or whatever, Korean versus Indonesian, Japanese versus Filipino, Chinese versus Cambodian. I'm not saying being Japanese or Chinese makes one racist. You can be Japanese and racist, but one doesn't always include the other. I think it is not controversial to say that being Japanese in Hawaii gives you privilege but it's not something we really talk about. After World War II, my stepfather's father and that generation of men and women had the strange, humiliating humiliating task of rebuilding a society with an identity crisis. A veteran of a few wars or battles from its recent history after reopening to the world, Japan was in no place to try to save face in the early 20th century. Its dreams of empire and dominion were faded. The Axis had lost. I'm talking about the 1940s, excuse me. And the Axis had lost. And Japan limped with two wounds festering with nuclear pus. But rebuild itself it did. People worked very hard and eventually came out as one of the leading tech economies of the world. To be Japanese meant cool, anime, J-pop, samurai, kabuki, culture, arts, tech. Here in Hawaii specifically, being Japanese wasn't always cool. During World War II, there was a lot of suspicion surrounding the Japanese community, as there was suspicion throughout the rest of the United States. But Japanese Americans proved themselves in a war for a country that wasn't quite their own, in lands that weren't their own, for an island, or islands that weren't, weren't their ancestors' islands. The Yellow Peril was upgraded to model minority in a generation. Many Japanese organized and rallied against management and labor unions and got involved with politics, ushering in the democratic revolution in Hawaii. A lot of what we understand and know as local life was scaffolded by 
yes, an influx of a rainbow of cultures, but also by many Japanese Americans. Sashimi, bon dance, tourism, Japanese investors, the Yakuza, Japanese weddings,、uh, slippers, sushi, mochi, azuki beans, Japanese trees at、uh, Moana Lua Gardens. Japanese culture pervades Hawaii. Like the Hitachi tree, its branches ever spreading outward, casting shadows and leaves everywhere. I'm not saying Japanese culture is bad or anything. I'm just trying to make an effort to deconstruct racism or unseen structures of systemic oppression and things that cause inequity in the power structures here in Hawaii. And a lot of it stems from Asian settler colonialism. I'd like to share a story from high school. Embarrassing, shameful anecdote alert. So, I'm trying to think what my first exposure to Japanese anything was. For a moment, I thought it was hentai. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Nasty. It was innocent. Power Rangers, Pokemon, Digimon, Mario, of course, Super Mario RPG, by the way, is one of my most favorite games ever. And Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, too. Anyway, this isn't about video games, though I would so be able to talk about that right now. That's a different episode. So, anyway, I started watching anime in middle school. My mom also started dating my stepdad around the same time. In high school, who is Japanese? In high school, I took Japanese language and was obsessed with kanji. I love learning the characters, the My classmates didn't care for it. You know why? Because I'm a nerd, guys. I got into Hayao Miyazaki, who still shapes my life and aesthetic, and composer Joe Hisaishi, whose music I revere. I saw Madame Butterfly at Hawaii Opera Theater. And when my dad signed me up for Aikido my sophomore or junior year, I was upset because I couldn't watch a Kiku program I was obsessed with that was about the Shinsengumi. The only reason I liked going to Aikido was I learned how to use a boken or a sword and a, a wooden sword for practice and a staff like those people in my Kiku program, Shin Sengumi. And because my papa too was a martial artist and took Aikido too. I was proud to be Japanese. And embarrassingly, I looked down upon anything Chinese. To be Chinese to me was to be like a flimsy product with a made in China label on it. I went to China my junior year and it was shocking. It, compared to my trip to Japan when I was in sixth grade, China was dirty, stifling, and just strange. Japan was clean, everything worked nicely. There weren't men with machine guns guarding places or kids pooping in the streets. A lot of my extreme feelings were tempered when I started going to church and learning to love people. <laughs> and now that I don't go to church, my patience has, has, has waned. <laughs> I also, when I was、um, starting to go to church around 2008, I began to also dismantle feelings of unwarranted loathing towards my dear, dear sister Aisha. I carried growing up in,、um, from childhood. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Love you, Aisha. We can focus that on a, in on another episode.、Um, and like, also, like, whenever I finally fucking publish <laughs> the episode where I interview Aisha and Renton.、Um, but we're talking about Sean being bigoted right now. So that was my past. Fast forward to 2017. Um, not going to church anymore. In fact, I left church because I started dating a guy.、Um, I'm working for a theater, typical of thespian heathens. And in 2017, my coworkers and I one day are on a lunch break in between a morning show and afternoon matinee performance of a Jingju version of Mulan, written by my coworker senpai, Alvin Chan. We all decide to go eat at a restaurant named Legends in the Chinatown Cultural Plaza here in Honolulu. Honolulu. Ah, I did not 
warm up my mouth. So anyway, during this production of Mulan, my body has been finessed and trained to do small, simple Beijing opera moves. For、um, we were in training for a few months, and I had found a new appreciation for Asian theater. I also made a connecting point between Chinese culture and my Papa Chu person I revere because I was learning martial arts moves, even though the moves were applied in a performative sense, not a martial sense, for the stage in Jingju. So I'm less bigoted in 2017, you know. And so anyway, my coworkers, my coworkers and I, we all get to the restaurant. We sit down,、um, and. Alvin has all these recommendations, so we all just let him order. And for the first time in the four years I've known Alvin, heard him speak Cantonese, his first language, his mother tongue, and I start crying. Not that it takes much for me to cry, but <laughs> I mean, he's just asking the waitress a question about food and shit, like simple things, you know. But I'm crying because because I'm I'm sensitive. You know, if you know me, you know I cry a lot,、um, and the sensitivity comes from a place of always searching for what is true, always looking for the true, what is good, the beautiful in the world. The, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful? I'm always seeking that, questioning, asking, and asking that question. And to me, hearing people talk in their first. Language, the language of their childhood, their birth—it has a sort of sacred, soulful groundedness to it.、Um, that it just moves me so much. I'm proud to say now I no longer look at disdain toward Chinese culture, but I appreciate it, and I'm proud to be Chinese. Even though it's a little bit one of my the plethora rainbow of ethnicities that I that make me. I've also started writing a play in honor of my grandfather、um, about a girl and her grandpa, both being huge Bruce Lee fans, dealing with grief, heroism, and growing up. So, Asian privilege. Okay, so that's what I wrote over just a little over a year ago, and.、Um, I guess updates.、Um, yeah, there's a lot of Asian hate happening,、um, and has been happening this past year.、Um, at work, we wrote a whole episode about addressing this issue.、Um, I wrote a song, a couple songs in that episode.、Um, check it out, hcyweb.org, Honolulu Theater for Youth. Check out our YouTube,、um, and. Um, yeah, I just wrote a new draft of that play. That's no longer called. I, it used to be called "I Want to Be Bruce Lee," which I don't know. That's a that's like a attention getter, I suppose.、Um, and I guess it could still be called that. But working title right now is "Martial Arts Mama," and、um, anyway, so oh, and I started taking Tai Chi、um, <laughs> on YouTube. Through a program that Jet Li started, <laughs>、um, yeah. Asian privilege. As I'm speaking right now, I'm looking at my wall that has、um, a bunch of pictures, most of them from my first birthday party.、Um, uh, so the pictures of me as a baby with. Uh, my family members,、um, and yeah, I'm just seeing like my Filipino side,、um, my Hawaiian side, thinking about how how beautiful this place we live in is, and how chapsui we are, and、um, and how beautiful that is, and how How that can also be damaging, I suppose. You know,、um, at work we we just、um, devised a play called Holo Holo Na Holo Holona,、um, 
which basically is like animals holo holoing going um and it's about animals that um animal stories and kind of from generally hawaiian perspective kanaka maoli perspective um so we talk some of it is uh traditional tales mo'olelo or um or retellings of them um and some of them are made up stories illustrating how um animals from hawaii um operate you know scientifically um and anyway um why did i bring that up i think um having a specifically hawaiian perspective in the show um is wonderful and um and i think it the, the older i get the more i come to appreciate um well f- first of all just having a hawaiian perspective at all which I, i i never really had in some ways but did you know i was talking to my coworker today about um this song ewai anai by the pandanas club that i hadn't heard for years um that i heard on the radio the other day and it made me so happy because it made me think about growing up um listening to um the radio with my hawaiian grandpa um after school you know on the way to jack in the box or whatever um so hawaiian music i i never really learned it learned it but certain melodies um of certain mele they i know them but i don't know them um and um so that's kind of my hawaiian perspective growing up uh, listening to hawaiian music on the radio and of course you know hawaiian values you know um from my grandparents i think um and of course going to kamehameha schools made me a, a good and industrious young man <laughs> um but anyway the play that we devised about the hawaiian animals i think it working with my coworkers and learning more about what is it what it means in a deeper way to have a hawaiian perspective makes me appreciate um doing this this kind of storytelling and making this kind of art that is explicitly hawaiian and not necessarily chop suey local mix um which is you know what i grew up with because the dilution the the dilution of hawaiian culture in a local culture um doesn't always necessarily cheapen it but it can um it can mask it and have the hawaiian perspective kind of fade into the background at uh so in in a sense sometimes and you know some this is only sometimes a local our local chop suey culture that we have in hawaii this melting pot or whatever you want to call it um the hawaiian perspective it's at the expense of the hawaiian perspective it's at the expense of the hawaiian people um and so just learning about the term japanese settler colonialism um gives gave me pause i'd never considered these kinds of ideas before probably because you know the conservative in me uh was like oh no 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 i don't want none of that marxist stuff you know <laughs> tainting my americanism you know um which i get and there's of course still a part of me that is um a kennedy democrat like um my grandpa and grandma chu um uh left of center um sort of catholic but asian you know uh but you know that and that that's fine but i think the more i learn the more i listen the more i um want to uphold and build a kahua um build a stage for um the part of me that is hawaiian the part of others that are hawaiian and who are artists that want to express themselves in that way so i thought it was important to address that um yeah i i've been thinking about this 
since last year, you know, I started thinking about all these things because of of George Floyd. Um, this was a huge turning point um, uh, in in a lot of my thinking thoughts and stuff. Uh, what, 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 thinking thoughts? What am I saying? Um, it was a huge turning point in, it, there was a shift that occurred last summer because I, I, I understood theoretically, right, what was happening in the continent uh, with um, Black Lives Matters, um, the protests, um, um, but I had, I don't have any lived experience. I've never lived on the continent or anywhere other than Hawaii. Um, it's my only frame of reference. So a question that arose in all of that, oh my goodness, in the sound and fury of that was last summer, um, was the question of what does privilege mean here in Hawaii? You know, that became a huge thing. It became a huge thing, a point of, a talking point, um, whether political or casual, you know, became a huge question, you know, where is privilege? What is privilege? When is privilege? And how? Um, and there are a lot of answers and a lot of action taken based on those questions. Um, but, like, excuse me. Mm, I just burped some of my vegetarian lasagna. Yum, 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 yum. So anyway, like most, most things, the questions of privilege like fashion, like trends, like shows. It took like, it takes a long time to get from other places to Hawaii, you know, kind of catch on to things a little later. And, um, so yeah, what does privilege mean here in Hawaii? And I think part of the answer is what does um, not what part of the answer to what does privilege look like in Hawaii is how does Asian settlerism if you will affect um, the whole sculpture here in Hawaii how does it affect or how has it affected and continues to affect power structures um, and I don't really have answers, you know. I just think it is something to to consider when engaging in conversations. Because the beautiful thing about living in Hawaii, I keep repeating this ad nauseum, um, you know, it goes without saying, is that there is this kind of strange, wonderful unity of sorts that transcends ethnicity and neighborhood. Um, <laughs> and that's because all us minorities <laughs> have shared trauma, generational trauma from working on the plantation. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, um, there is this, because of um, my ancestors, our ancestors that worked on the plantation, that worked very hard. Um, all these people that came here to try to make a living for their ohana, for their family, um, in combination with, you know, uh, the aloha that lives here in the people in the Aina, you know, um, this blending contributed to my privilege of living a very 
pretty comfortable um, middle class suburban Pearl City life. <laughs> like, I literally had like every new video game console growing up soon after it came out. I'm just thinking about this thing, these things, you know. Um, I'm male, um, you know, not necessarily straight, but like straight passing, you know. It could be white passing. I don't know. I'm definitely Asian looking. Um, so yeah, privilege. Something I've been wondering about. And going back, circling back to George Floyd, you know, um, started asking these questions. Um, so I was looking for answers. And one of the things I did was read James Baldwin, um, The Fire Next Time, um, watched videos of him, read If Beale Street Could Talk, watched that beautiful movie that adapted his story to the screen, um, and listened, uh, and <laughs> was immersed in the beautiful soundtrack. If you like instrumental music, um, check out Nicholas Patel, the composer. Um, of the soundtrack of If Beale Street Could Talk. That soundtrack to me is, ugh, it's gorgeous. He also did the soundtrack for, for Moonlight, and um, he composed the opening credits to HBO's Succession. Um, anywho, so yeah, James Baldwin, um, and I started writing a play kind of not necessarily about privilege, but sort of, you know. The story is more about a um, father-son um, father-son redemption story, in so many words. Um, but in the play, there is the son wrestling with the father's... Um, which was what do you what do you say how do you say it um machismo machismo uh, you know his toxic masculinity you know that he inherited from his father um, um, who happens to be Asian and so uh, I was kind of exploring these themes that were popping up um, last summer in the zeitgeist, I guess, and uh, trying to find some answers or find more specific questions that made sense here in Hawaii. Um, and yeah, and then in this play, call, I call it Oto-san, which means dad in Japanese. Um, there's a mom character who's Filipino and um, her father-in-law did not like that his son married a brown-skinned woman, you know, so there's that. And, um, and yeah, like, I, th I feel like perhaps, and this is just me spitballing and throwing things out there, right? It, perhaps that kind of um, dynamic of, how do you say, kind of like inter-Asian racism, you know, not that all Asian is the same, but you know what I mean? Like, um, the inter-Asian racism, if you, if you will, um, is analogous, I suppose, like in my brain, like a Japanese grandpa hating on a Filipino daughter-in-law is perhaps analogous in some ways to the sticky subject of the relationship of the African-American community and the Asian-American community in the U.S. continent. Um, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know if that is a good analogy or not, but... I am aware of tensions. And that is not to say that there are overt tensions between Japanese and Filipino communities here in Honolulu. Damn it, I did it again. Not to say that there are tensions between Filipinos and Japanese communities here in Honolulu, but um, I think that is something that 
uh, would have been a real thing, right? In, I don't know, back, back in the day, probably. Um, maybe, no, not in Hawaii. You'd have to go kind of <laughs> farther back. <laughs> what is that word? Miscognation. Miscegenation. Miscegenation, that word. That means, uh, Google says, the interbreeding of people considered to be of different racial types. Um, anyway, Hawaiians are marrying uh, white people long before other um, uh, the plantation people started coming in. So, wow. I feel like I'm wrapping up here. <laughs> Let's end on <laughs> laws against marrying people of a different race. <laughs> um, yeah. I think maybe I'll talk about um, a positive thing. And I don't think I recorded this story yet, but... Um, So, this coming season in Honolulu at Manoa Valley Theater, they are planning to put on, in May, I believe, the fabulous play by Lorene called Cambodian Rock Band. And I am planning to audition for this show. I am planning to be in this show, and I will tell you why. Um, flashback to the summer of um, 2019. Oh, what a glorious summer. What a beautiful, beautiful, sum- beautiful, beautiful summer <laughs> it was. I um, went to Oregon Shakespeare Festival by myself. I met a nice boy after that festival. It all kind of got weird and shaky and I like ups and downs and crazy, but I had a great roast for my birthday around the same time. And I was, I played Caliban in The Tempest and I, and I AD'd that show and I did the music. Oh my gosh. I know I did these things, but you know, like, we are the experience. Like, you look back at something, you're like, why did I do that? I'm having that right now. Like, that, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just recognizing that I spent a huge amount of energy into that project. Um, it's all voluntary. So anyway, Cambodian Rock Band. That was also one of the shows in OSF, Oregon Shakespeare Festival's season, that year, the 2019 year uh, season. Um, and so watched some shows in July or June or whatever, two years ago. Oh my gosh, it's two years ago. And some were okay, some were great, but by far my favorite was a non-Shakespeare show, <laughs> Cambodian Rock Band. Oh gosh, excuse me. Ooh, lasagna again. So I think this is like either the last or second to last show I see um, at the festival. And um, oh, it's a magical, I don't like using that word, but it was um, a blessed time. <laughs> you can, can you tell I was very Catholic? <laughs> it was a blessed. It was a blessed time. That whole trip was beautiful. Um, I love the Pacific Northwest. Um, I love not having to travel in a group and just being able to wander wherever I wanted to. I drank this wonderful coconut. Um, water that is really expensive that I bought from a like co-op store or whatever Um, and anyway Cambodian Rock Band okay so the day before I watched Cambodian Rock Band um, I uh, watch a production of All's Well That Ends Well and in 2018 I helped compose music and write songs 
for Hawaii Shakespeare Festival's um, production of All's Well That Ends Well. And the concept that the director, Tony Pisculli, put out there um, was to make it like a Disney kind of-esque version of the show. That was the task. So I had to know the show and figure out like where songs could be or what what the song who would be singing the songs and like you know all that business kind of basically um, thinking of it in musical type terms um, and I had a blast and um, so I go into watching All's Well That Ends Well knowing the story quite well knowing some of the lines after watching so many rehearsals quite well and I got to see this different interpretation of it um, which I loved and um, um, and there I look in the notes you know um, and of who, uh, the program notes of who composed the music right um, this individual named Jane Louie who's also in the show and I am impressed with what she did and um, and so I, I find her Insta, and, like, I message her, and I'm just like, hey, like, um, great job, great work, li- like, I sound design and compose music for this um, show at a production in Hawaii, you know, like, great job, some of the moments that you had music were places I had the same instinct to underscore as well, blah, 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 um, Sean nerding out and um, being fangirling, essentially, you know, um, and... And, you know, like, I just, like, being nice and try to be generous, you know, like, when I go to watch shows, even if I don't like the show, you know, try to show appreciation when I can, right? You know, it's not easy to put on anything in the theater. It takes a lot of energy and time and resources and manpower, people power. But, um, so, um, the next day, I am gonna go watch Cambodian Rock Band. Sunday matinee so I go watch it my mind is freaking blown and Jane Louis also in this production and helped arrange music for um, the show so I'm just like oh my gosh wow um, and uh, and let me tell you why Jane comes back in later okay so sorry I'm organizing the thoughts in my head how the story is to be told so my mind is blown because um before the show starts, I'm looking at the pro, the again the the program notes and is that what you call it? <laughs> anyway, the thing, right? The program, and basically more than well, well the whole cast is all Asian American, you know, which is great. Nothing new. We do that here, kind of in Hawaii, kind of is the demographic, you know, ix demographics, whatever the word is. Um, but I think that's great. Um, and I look at the crew, like 80% of the crew is also Asian American. Right on. And um, mind you, this is in a kind of uh, maybe 200, 300 seater, maybe 200, a kind of black box um, theater. And it's, uh, I guess it's a, is it like a thrust seating and so you can see everyone in the in the in the performance space um and there are like five people of color i saw two shows in that space and each time i was in the minority the huge um the majority of the patrons of osf are um it seems you know like white and like a little more well off um and um so yeah so just that's like painting the picture setting the stage (laughs) setting the stage the mind freaking the show freaking blows my mind um i am crying i am weeping i and for the first time in my life i understand in a visceral way the importance of representation I think it's because of the context of sitting in that audience. And um, <laughs> there was another show I watched um, there that also underscored this fact, um, sidebar, that was um, 
uh, an original um, uh, version uh, or a different version of um, the comedy of errors called La Comedia of Errors that um, had the characters um, be um, Latinx characters that I thought was beautifully done. And it was designed for to tour to schools in the area. And, um, <laughs> and you know, um, if you're familiar with the story, it kind of starts off with this, um, I think it's a, it's a father. I forget what his character is, but he's being withheld by like the sheriff or something or like, you know, the authorities. And in this version, um, it's, um, is it ice? Ice? No, not ice. What is it? The fuck is it? No, it is right. Um, officer, the immigration officer, and the dad. You know, he he doesn't speak much English, um, and um, yeah. And then instead of the comedy of errors, one of them that happens is because there's two sets of twins, and they're both named the same name. And people, they're both from different places. Um, they were separated at birth. And because of circumstances, they arrive in the same city. And people mistake them for the other, right? So, um, yeah. One set of the... There are two sets of twins. So one pair or whatever. And the one set of the twins... It's so complicated. My words, my brain. So there's a guy who's a servant and a guy who's a master. And the servant has a twin and the master has a twin. And um, uh, one set of those guys speak Spanish. One set of those guys speak English. Is that clear? Okay. (laughs) That's clear in my brain. (laughs) So anyway, there's a part in the show where in the original they call for a priest, right, to exercise a demon because they think that this guy is crazy because they, they don't, he doesn't recognize his wife, he doesn't know what's going on or blah, 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 right? Because it's a, you know, the comedy of errors. And um, in this production, they call this person, I don't know what it's called because I'm not, I'm not Latino, but they call this person who's essentially kind of like a witch doctor kind of person. And um, I found out, I guess, in 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 certain cultures in Latin America, I guess, um, Vicks Vapor Rub is also a cure all, and because the witch doctor brought out a huge tub of Vicks Vapor Rub <laughs> as the way to heal the person to exercise the demons, <laughs> and I freaking lost it um, because if you don't know, that is also a thing in Filipinos. Uh, culture. Um, I grew up with that shit. My Nana would put that on my chest, on my back, on my legs if they got cramped or whatever. She put on my freaking like nostrils, in my nostrils when I had a cold, you know? Might as well freaking eat in the thing. So anyway, I love Vicks. Swearing that shit. Get that menthol, whatever. You know, do what you gotta do to get better, boo-boo. But um, so anyway, I laughed. I laughed so hard with this um, cross-cultural um, joy and surprise this, this conne- that this connection even exists of Vicks Vaporub transcending cultures, you know? <laughs> and it was me and like probably the other, like three other Latinx people in the audience laughing because we got it. No one else got it. <laughs> you know? So anyway, back to Cambodian rock band. Um, that context of understanding representation in a, in a very strong way came to the fore because of being in this audience where I'm the minority. Okay? Anyway, so go, go read that play. Go watch the play if you can, um, when you can. Um, because it's fabulous and I love it so 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 much and it's kind of like a musical but not um, because there are songs 
in Cambodian rock band that are in Khmer, which is what Cambodian、um, people use to refer to、um, their language and themselves as a people, Khmer.、Um, there are songs in the show that are in Khmer, some by artists that were famous back in the day before the KR took over,、um, and some songs are from this band. Um, um, called Dingy Fever, that has the lead singer who's Kamai, who sings like surf rock that、um, is inspired from、um, the 60s and 70s when there was a lot of rock and roll going on in Phnom Penh. So I love that there's, a, there's an alternate reality where I'm a rock, a rock star. Maybe not a huge successful one, but like. I've thought about starting a punk rock band, you know. I still think about starting a, a band.、Um, am I ever going to do it? We'll see. <laughs> so,、uh, yeah, I watch the show. I like get a better understanding of representation.、Um, and I meet the cast afterwards. I'm starstruck. Um, I'm like,、um, And then, I, you know, I like f- actually meet Jane, you know, and then she's like, and then I leave, and then she's like, hey, did you hear about the talkback? And I'm like, hold up, talkback? I am there. And she's like, yeah, it's going to be at this building, educational building or whatever.、Um, so I go to the building, it's like locked. I'm like, yo, how do I get in here? Doesn't look like I'm supposed to be in this place. It looks like I need a fob to even access this place. And then、um, she's like, oh, yeah, it's somewhere in there, blah, blah, blah. And then a few minutes later, she's like, Oh, wait, never mind. It's being like changed to this other location. And guess what, everyone? This other location is this like cool, like intimate, like garden cafe thing in town. Like, like, like beautiful. Like, it's not like, not like, like, like Versailles, like crazy garden, but you know, it's like just like a humble little like Ashland garden. Ashland is a city that OSF is. Um, takes place in.、Um, so, but and the talk back, which I felt like no one knew about, was basically me, a reporter from Seattle, a theater artist from Seattle, and the cast and some of their significant others.、Um, so I was like, what is happening? <laughs> like, I am a blessed right now. I am so happy, so, 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 so happy. And then All of a sudden, in the middle of all that, like chit chat and stuff,、um, one of the cast, um, um, Brooke Ishibashi, Senpai Brooke san, love, 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 love you, Brooke.、Um, her grandma and mom and dad show up, and apparently, her, mo- her grandma was known as the songbird of Manzanar or something. Like, she is a person. You know, so I'm just like, what? What is this? Wow.、Um, and yeah, I, it was just such a beautiful day. And I loved it so much. And I love Cambodian rock band. And some, I sometimes still message Jane and Brooke Senpai.、Um, and I keep tabs on all the peoples and、um, Asian American. Cousins and sisters and brothers on the continent. And it's just, it's, it's,、um, it's, it's a strange dance and beautiful dance to, to be, to at once be proud to be、um, one thing. But going back to like what I was talking about earlier, you know, like not wanting to have that、um, overshadow or, or,、um, or harm, you know, the, The Pacific Islander or indigenous part of me, right? The AAPI, you know,、uh, tension, right? But that tension,、uh, you know, for some people is external because they're in one camp or they're in the other. For me, I'm in both camps, you know what I mean? I'm mixed. I am chop suey, y'all. So, like,、uh, like, let's try to get along when we can. <laughs> That's, those are my wise words of. Of how to achieve world peace. So, anyway, 
I love being Asian. I love being Pacific Islander. I love being everything that I am. And here at Kamamo House, that is what we're all about. Culture, arts, ohana, Grandma Eloise, this podcast is named after. Oh, and by the way, um, one last thing before I leave, um, happy Asian thoughts. Um, I was part of this playwriting program, and we got... Um, my cohorts and I got to choose like, you know, our top three like coaches or whatever. We all got our number ones. I chose Che Yu, who directed the production of Cambodian rock band that I watched. Holy crap. So cool. I had such a great year. It's such a strange time, y'all. What a shitty, blessed year. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, it is wild. And that's it. I mean, you know, please stay safe. Please make sensible choices. And let's keep trying to do what is best for our fellow man. All right. It's Sean signing off. This episode of Kamama House is brought to you by myself. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, email me at kamamo.house at gmail.com. That's kamamo, period, H-O-U-S-E, at gmail.com. I guess I should spell out kamamo too. K-A-M-A-M-O, period, H-O-U-S-E, at gmail.com. All right, thanks. Bye. Mm-hmm.